Well, please, if you would, would you open your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 1. So as I was preparing, I plan my sermons, and then I prepare them, and then in the midst of preparing uh, this week, I really sensed that I needed, instead of taking the rest of this chapter, uh, just to slow down. And so we're only going to look at uh, a few of these verses. We're going to start in verse 14 and and read through verse 22. So uh, it's our custom to stand, uh, and you're welcome to to join us. Uh, We're acknowledging that this is, in fact, uh, the living God speaking to us uh, through uh, the Gospel of Mark. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishermen fishers of men, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets, and immediately called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may take your seat. It was 1 a.m. in the morning, and Nancy and I were both awakened by a siren It wailed in what was a strange pattern. It would blast, and then it would stop, like it was taking a deep breath, and then when it blasts again. And this seemed to go on forever. Maybe it was only 15 minutes or 30 minutes. And eventually we got back to sleep, but we were very puzzled, just puzzled. The next day, we learned that a tornado uh, had destroyed a neighborhood just a few miles away from where we lived. It had never occurred to us that Atlanta was a place where there would be tornadoes. We thought that was Oklahoma and Kansas. Um, A few years ago, many of you know, we moved to South Dakota. And there in the little town of Yankton, on Wednesdays at noon, the sirens that warn of the weather sound every week to be sure that they actually uh, work. And uh, once you're clued in to what they're doing, you recognize they're making a proclamation about the weather. Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news about God. The gospel is the good news that God's kingdom has broken into the world. Now the word kingdom, uh, when we hear that word, we think of things like well, the United Kingdom, or the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, or perhaps Jordan. We think of kingdoms as places and political entities, but in the kingdom of God, it's not a place. It is the reign and rule of God. 
And we'll see as uh, Jesus uh, teaches and uh, communicates about this uh, kingdom through his parables that the kingdom is both present and future. It's now and it's coming. It's small. It's like a seed. It grows invisibly, uh, but it is coming. And one day it will arrive in all its fullness and glory and power. And God's reigns good news for us. His presence and power and authority are good news. Uh, as he's broken into ordinary life because it means new beginnings for our world and our lives. And so when Mark writes, Jesus came proclaiming, he's using, well, in the original language here, uh, a word that means heralding. Jesus is heralding this ancient uh, uh, is heralding the kingdom of God. And in the ancient world, uh, a herald was a lot like those tornado warning sirens. Um, they would go into enemy territory ahead of an army and proclaim that an army was coming and destruction was certain, and here are the terms of peace. And usually those terms in the ancient world were unconditional uh, surrender, and then various things were imposed on those who uh, surrendered. And that's what Jesus is doing, is he proclaims that the kingdom of God is at hand. When he calls people to repent and believe, repentance is a change of mind and attitude and direction in how we live. And when that comes into our lives, we have a profound awareness of our spiritual poverty and uh, our rebellion against uh, the king. And uh, repentance is admitting that we've tried to be our own uh, king. And faith is accepting the terms that the king offers and submitting to Jesus as our Lord and leader in our lives. That's how we enter the kingdom of God. It's how we experience a new beginning. And actually, it's how you experience a new beginning uh, even after you have your first new beginning with God. It's repentance and, and faith. Jesus speaks with authority. And that authority is revealed in, in our text this morning in two ways. Jesus calls his disciples, and Jesus' acts of teaching, healing, and deliverance. Now, we're just going to mostly, almost exclusively look at that first. So when you look at that outline, if you're using it, just know that there's not half a sermon left <laughs> when, we get, when we get down there. So Jesus demonstrates his authority in what he does. And in this way, he's revealing who he is. The revelation of who he is actually occupies the first half of Mark's gospel. So with authority, Jesus calls his first disciples, follow me. He summons four commercial fishermen beside the Sea of Galilee. Now that's a picturesque lake. It's seven miles wide and 13 miles long. The lake is confined by mountains on one side and and low hills on the other. And if you stood up on those mountains, you would see that the lake is, is shaped like a harp. In fact, that's why it's called the Sea of Galilee, because of its uh, shape. 
And one of the first century historians uh, said that the water was pure, sweet, and filled with a variety of fish. And Jesus is walking along the shore, which is made up of black basalt. So it's, it's a hard surface to walk on. It's an uneven surface. It's a difficult surface, actually, to pull a boat up onto. And these men are fishing, which is a major industry on this lake. There are no less than 16 ports uh, in, in Jesus' time there. And fish were the staple of the Roman world. And so the fish that came from Capernaum, where these fishermen uh, went, all the way to Alexandria, Egypt, and all the way uh, north uh, to Antioch in Syria. And when Jesus calls uh, Simon and Andrew, they're casting their nets. Now, these nets were circular. They were about 20 feet in diameter, and they had weights out on the end, and they would drop down like a parachute in the water. And then the fisherman would jump out of the boat, and he would uh, swim down, uh, grab up those weights, and then he would drag the net with the fish in it uh, back to the uh, shore. These men, Simon, also known to us probably better as Peter and Andrew and James and John, they are not day laborers. They're not impoverished men. No, they are shrewd, successful businessmen who are making a living in a competitive international market. They spoke Greek in addition to Aramaic. Uh, They not only knew the trade of fishing, they understood how markets work. And they were in a family business. By that, I don't mean that they, their families did this for a couple generations. They were probably had done this for centuries. They stuck with what they knew. And it's with great simplicity that Jesus tells us that he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They hear that and they obey instantly without reservation. And the sons of Zebedee do as well. Now, there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye on, on just a casual glance. Just the very shortness of the text would make you think, well, this, you know, you, you just probably, you might reach, you'd miss some things. I'm sure you would. First of all, this was utterly radical because people in the ancient world didn't do this sort of thing. They didn't walk away uh, from their livelihoods. That was very risky. And uh, it would have broken all of the social ties and expectations that rested on them, which were far weightier uh, for them uh, than for us. This is just unthinkable. People didn't do this sort of thing. And Mark uh, uh, portrays this with such simplicity because he wants us to see the essential nature of discipleship here. The way these men are called is the way that everyone is called. And we need to unpack this. Discipleship in the Jewish world normally started with the student taking initiative. He would find a rabbi and he would say, Rabbi, teach me the Old Testament. And the rabbi would accept them as a student. Kind of the way you might seek out private lessons for an instrument or play uh, tennis or golf. And Jesus turns this utterly upside down. He chooses whom he calls. And he does something else that no one, John the Baptist didn't do this, none of the prophets in the Old Testament did this. He calls them to follow him. 
the prophets, and John called people to follow God and his ways. You see, Jesus is more than a prophet. His authority is revealed in this. He is the Lord and uh, King. Now, you see, being a disciple is not like taking an elective course. It's not like deciding, well, I'd like to take up photography or pottery. It's not deciding I'm going to take a, a hike on the weekend or planning a vacation or choosing a cruise. No, it's something completely different than that. Jesus is by the lake. He comes to them at the lake because he is fishing for disciples. And they are are called to leave their nets and learn a new trade, which in some ways will be like their old one. This call is a summons uh, to embrace the mission that Jesus has and will require total dedication of them. Jesus is inviting them in to his mission, and it, it says, I will make you. They have to be made fishers of men. It's going to take several years. They'll be shaped and molded and trained with the necessary skills. And it won't be easy work. People are hard to catch. Now, like most things uh, in the Gospels, there is an Old Testament layer. There's multiple layers. And there's a couple of them uh, here that uh, we need to appreciate because they really help us understand the mission that's here. The word fisher of men, that phrase and that image is used five times in the Old Testament. And it has kind of an ominous tone. Let me, let me read from uh, Jeremiah 16. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt for them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways, they are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin, because they have polluted my land with carcasses of their detestable idols, and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. And so this metaphor is always used in the Old Testament in the context of judgment. What this means is that Jesus is asking uh, that these men rescue people from the coming climactic just judgment, lest all be lost. And there's something else uh, that's here, and it would have been obvious to people in the first century, but it's not so obvious to us. Water, and especially the sea in the Old Testament, is a symbol of evil and chaos. And so in the background of fishers of men is to see that sin and death are symbolized by the place where fish are to be found. They'll be fished out, that is rescued out of the clutches of the kingdom of darkness, out of the realm that is hostile to God. So if we put all this together, what we see is these disciples are being called to herald the good news. And they're going to go into enemy territory and announce that the king has come. And the fullness of the kingdom is coming. And people must either enter the kingdom or perish. All disciples are called to this. To herald this good news of hope and deliverance as well as the warning that the king is uh, coming. 
that ignoring or rejecting the king will have terrible consequences. All disciples are called to share in Jesus' uh, mission. All disciples are called to herald, not all in the same uh, way, um, but all of us need to be made into fishers of men. And in September, there'll be an opportunity for you to take a step in being made as fishers of men when Sunday school resumes. There's something else to see here, and it underlines once again the authoritative word of Jesus. Jesus doesn't reason with Simon or James. He doesn't seek to persuade them. He doesn't implore uh, them. No, he summons them, and immediately uh, they follow. It's an authoritative summons. Now, you shouldn't picture this as if Jesus is a stranger who walks up to these men, and they've never seen him before, and he says these words to him. No, that's not true, and the other Gospels tell us that these men had had contact with John the Baptist, and actually they had contact uh, with Jesus. But Mark says this very simply. He's intentionally simply because he doesn't want us to miss the power of this authoritative word that Jesus speaks. And in fact, in the synagogue, those last verses we read in our text, Jesus goes into Capernaum, and like many Jewish men, he's asked to speak, and he does, and they are astonished by the way he teaches. His teaching is different than that of the scribes of Jesus' day. Those were the men who were the scholars and students of the Old Testament. The community looked to them to understand uh, the meaning of the Old Testament, to render judgments uh, about it. They knew what it meant. The scribes taught by quoting other rabbis in a very rapid-fire manner, something like this. Rabbi Hillel says this, Rabbi Gamaliel says this, but Rabbi Eliezer uh, says this, and so on. They spoke, in other words, with derived authority, had derivative authority. And Jesus shocked people because he spoke with direct authority. Truly, truly, I say to you, or you've heard it said of old that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be judged, but I say to you, nobody had ever spoken Uh, like that. It is with personal authority that Jesus teaches, and it is with this authority that he uh, summons. And this word that summons someone to be a disciple is a word that gives life. It's a gracious uh, call that originates in the will of God. He calls and he summons. Perhaps one of the most beautiful pictures of this is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus simply calls out to Lazarus to come out. And that's what happens in the life of everyone uh, who is a disciple. They are summoned out of death into life. You see, this is a life-giving, enabling call. Repenting and believing are gifts, the ability to turn to God, to see yourself, uh, uh, to... Uh, trust in Christ and what he's done. This is given to us. Yes, we act, but it's only because of a prior uh, gift. No one simply chooses uh, Jesus. They are summoned by this authoritative, life-giving word. And Jesus calls for people at once. 
Uh, Mark wants us uh, to see this, not just because it happened this way, but Jesus intentionally calls uh, people together because he's forming a community of people around himself. Jesus is at the center of that community. They will all share life together. In fact, much of the next three years, you shouldn't imagine it's every minute of every day that they never went home. That's, that's not true. They went home some. But they spent, well, the better part of three years on an extended camping trip. Now, if you've ever camped with people for a week out in the woods, you get to know them in a way that you can't, being merely a guest in their homes. You see, you can only stifle the real you for so long. And it's really hard for most of us to do that for an entire week. And so to be a Christ follower is not to be a nameless uh, number or someone who's nameless and faceless in a crowd. No, it's to be in a community of people whose names are known to you and your name is known to them, who actually know the real you. And this was true then, and it's still true today, but it's really very, very hard uh, for us because we are deeply individualistic. And so we don't like to, it doesn't come natural to us to actually factor into our, our plans or our lives the needs and concerns of other people. You see, our individualism is actually a breeding ground. It just spawns selfishness in us. And I've come to think it makes us actually very blind uh, to it. It's very hard for us to see that. Although sometimes God arranges for people to get married or he sends them children. And they begin, <laughs> they begin to see a little bit of just how utterly selfish they are. Jesus is calling us out of our radical individualism, out of this rugged individualism that so often, in, I think, in the uh, American imagination defines who we are as a a people. You see, Jesus is uh, calling us uh, away from the place where loyalty to ourselves and our preferences uh, trumps everything else. It takes over uh, uh, in marriage, in friendships, in life. He calls us to what is a radically countercultural lifestyle in America. And because we don't live together in a small village, just a few houses down from each other, we need a structure to actually help this to take place. And that's why small groups are so vital in our discipleship. We need the example, encouragement, support, accountability, and even correction that we can find there. Now, it's really hard, I think, for most of us to actually think that the people you spend time with actually shape you very deeply. See, we tend to downplay that. We don't think that we're influenced by uh, a group of people. Other people just don't influence us all that much. I do what I do because I choose to do it. That's what we actually uh, tend to think. But let me illustrate what I mean, and I hope this won't be very controversial. Uh, But... um, If any of you are members of the Flat Earth Society, please don't take offense at this illustration. So suppose you have several close friends who are part of the Flat Earth Society. 
and you're uh, very impressed by them. They're wonderful people. They're nice. Uh, they have character and industry, and they're very warm and welcoming to you, and they make you feel like you belong when you're uh, with them. Well, whether you realize it or not, eventually you'll be influenced by how they think. Their picture of uh, what planet Earth looks like is going to appear more and more attractive to you as a result. And sooner or later, it may very well be that they invite you to uh, a Flat Earth Society meeting. After all, you've met these wonderful people, and it seems like I'll uh, meet some more wonderful uh, people. And who knows? You may even up uh, join the Flat Earth Society because of the warmth of these relationships. Well, we're all affected by uh, relationships, and, um, and we, if we're going to be uh, faithful disciples, we need other disciples in our lives in a deep uh, way. In Jesus, the kingdom of God is broken into our world, and it demands a response. Can you hear Jesus calling you? Will you obey? Have you surrendered to Christ and not just committed to him? See, the language of commitment and surrender really, well, they're kind of different. And here's the difference. Surrender gives all control to Christ. Commitment leaves control in the hands of the disciple to determine what level of commitment, what aspects of being a disciple uh, you will sign up for. But discipleship is not choosing something off a menu. It's not like shopping on Amazon. No, discipleship is a complete surrender to Christ. Now, most of you have been disciples for a long time. And so what Mark's asking of you, one of the audience Mark has written for is the church. He's asking you, do you recognize Jesus? Do you know really what it means to follow him? And so let me ask just a couple diagnostic questions for you. Are you learning from Jesus how to be a fisher of men? Are you available to him to be a part of his redeeming uh, mission, his rescuing work in the lives of others? Can he interrupt your schedule, your plans? Now, I'm not saying, and please don't hear me saying this, that all Christians are called to full-time vocational work. That is not what I'm saying at all. Uh, uh, Jesus does not intend in any way to take away from you all the ordinary callings uh, that you have in your lives, whether that's uh, being a, a son to a parent or a daughter or, or uh, being married or having children or your jobs or, or being uh, neighbors and citizens. Uh, nor does it mean that your involvement in those arenas is somehow uh, insignificant or unimportant. That's not all. It's just simply that part of being a disciple is, in fact, to uh, be on this mission of rescuing uh, people. Third diagnostic question is this. Are you giving yourself to community where you're going deeper and opening your life to others, being honest about your struggles and weaknesses. That's risky. I realize that's risky. It's hard to do, especially hard for pastors uh, to do because of the expectations. 
uh, people have on pastors. It's hard for a pastor uh, to do that often in the church or with uh, the elders. To follow Jesus will be costly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, when Christ calls a person, he calls them to come and die. To die to self and to selfish desires, to die to a self-directed course of living, to die to a consumeristic approach to life where you seek your preferences and to put first things first. Just consider these four men, what we uh, know either from the scriptures or church tradition about their lives. Simon Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified in Greece. James was beheaded and John was exiled. These men did not know what their futures would hold for them when they responded to Christ's summons. But they did know this, that they would put first things first. Are first things first in your life? Jesus, in a sense, was a disciple of his father. He always did what his father asked him to do. Jesus joined in the Father's mission. He carried it out unfailingly, and he paid a great price doing so. In fact, he paid every cost we can imagine. His family rejected him. They thought he was out of his mind. He left uh, the familiar world of carpentry to be an itinerant preacher. He voluntarily submitted himself to mistreatment and humiliation, uh, to shaming and torture and death. And he's rescued us. He did all that to rescue us. What can we say to that? Will you offer your life again to him afresh? Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, We pray, uh, Father, for those around us who may not have heard the call of Jesus, that they might hear it today and respond. And we pray, Father, uh, for one another as we are together, uh, just a collection of uh, disciples. Deepen our discipleship, we ask. Make us soft, uh, free us from being shaped by the attitudes and values and, and ways of living that so much are a part of our time and day. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.